the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Really? Is that amen or oh me? What would that be? The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. On one occasion, Dr. Christian Bernard, the very first surgeon to do a heart transplant, impulsively asked one of his patients, Dr. Philip Blayberg, would you like to see your old heart? At 8 a.m. on a subsequent evening, the men stood in a room of the Grot Shore Hospital in Johannesburg, South Africa, and Dr. Bernard took down a glass container and handed it to Dr. Blayberg. And inside of this container uh, was Dr. Blayberg's old heart. For a moment, he stood there stunned in silence, like we would have. The first man in history to ever hold his own heart in his hands. Finally, after he spoke with Dr. Bernard about the technical aspects of what just took place in his surgery, he took one final look at the contents of the glass container and he exclaimed, This is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. He handed it back to the doctor and turned and walked away and left it forever. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Now, obviously, this was in the physical sense of that pumping organ inside of your chest. However, the Bible teaches us that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Over 600 times the word heart is used in the Hebrew Scriptures. Pretty important, isn't it? Over 200 times in the New Testament, the word cardia is used in reference of the heart. There's not a single time in the Bible when that specific word heart means the pumping instrument inside of your chest. It has an Old Testament understanding as well as a New Testament that we can bring together. But I want you to know that it is in essence the issue of the heart why the New Covenant was instituted. We're moving towards Sunday, Palm Sunday, and we will all partake of the Lord's Supper. And I want to remind you that we still, if you're saved, you have the pumping instrument still inside of there. It's not new, but I want you to know that what the Bible calls your heart, if you are saved by grace through faith, you've been given a new heart. It's radically new. Now, in the Bible, the heart is the seat of man's conscious life in its moral intellectual, volitional, and emotional aspects. A lot of scholars have written, and it would say the center being C-E-N-T-R-E. Have you ever encountered that wording? That, that is a, a scholarly terminology for what the heart actually means. So emotion, intellect, will are woven into the very fabric and makeup of every person when you are born into this world. Romans 10 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your cardia, heart, that means the moral, emotional, intellectual, volitional center of what makes you a person, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You understand the problem of the Old Covenant was ultimately the problem of the heart. One of the motivating factors for studying the book of Hebrews, yes, 
you're in Hebrews today and not Acts. Because this is the perfect opportunity between chapter 20 and 21, where we're going to hit 21 to take a break and ramp up toward Resurrection Sunday. And I want to do that by talking to you about the New Covenant. When you study the book of Hebrews, you learn about the New Covenant. As a matter of fact, in chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews, beginning in verse 6 and down through verse 12, you have the longest, uh, extent, you have the extensive treatment in the New Testament of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And I realized that to understand the New Covenant is to understand the Gospel. And to understand the New Covenant is to understand the work of Jesus Christ in His life, death, burial, and resurrection. To understand the New Covenant is to understand that. So it's important. To understand the New Covenant is actually to understand... Who does what in salvation? That is important, isn't it? Who does what in salvation? So this passage, again, is the most extensive New Testament passage on the New Covenant. It's interesting, too, that this is the longest Old Testament quotation found anywhere in the New Testament. And it's on the New Covenant. So I would say that's pretty important. That the largest, longest quotation we have in the New Testament of the Old happens to be Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Now, the New Covenant is mentioned numerous times in the New Testament. For instance, in all the accounts of the Lord's Supper, or the Last Supper, there is a reference to the New Covenant. In Mark 14, this is the New Covenant in my blood poured out for many. Luke 22, 22, this is the New Covenant in my blood in Matthew this gospel, this is my blood of the covenant. In Hebrew, in the, in the book of Hebrews, it's customary for the writer to use a rhetorical device. And here's what he does. He kind of whets your appetite up front, and then he leaves it alone, and then comes back and explains what he told you earlier. It's to pique your interest. And so in the book of Hebrews, he does this first with the priesthood. He calls Jesus our great high priest, but then he doesn't explain it completely for quite some time, and then he comes back to it. Well, the same is true with the new covenant. He begins to awaken us to the new covenant early in Hebrews in chapter 7 by saying that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. And here in this chapter, well, sorry, in chapter 7, he is the guarantor of a new covenant. But in this chapter, leading up to what you're going to see today in chapter 8, it says he is the mediator of a better covenant. So now, he's going to develop for us what that covenant looks like. Dropped you a hint in chapter 7. Now he comes back in chapter 8. He's going to tell you what the new covenant is. And his point is going to be this. He reminds us of the inadequacy of the old covenant and the promise of the new covenant. The fault with the covenant was ultimately not the covenant. The heart of the problem is the problem of the... The problem with the first covenant was not the covenant. It was the people that God gave the covenant to. So in between the prologue and the last verse, He's going to give us these better promises that explain why the covenant is so much better. And those promises are the foundation for why you are actually in this building today. If it were not for the new covenant, you would not be here today. So we're going to do the prologue today, and then we're going to talk about a few of the promises, and we're going to save the ultimate promise of the 
covenant for next Sunday. Right before we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're going to talk about the most important promise of the New Testament and the New Covenant is this. And I will have mercy upon them, and I will remember their sins no more. You should be so happy this morning about that statement. We'll see it next week. But for our purposes today, I want to give you three things uh, of the occasion of the writer, of why he's telling you that the old is going away and the new has come. That is vitally important for us this morning. So here's our text. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 6 of Hebrews. Chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Are y'all tracking with me? Okay, beginning in verse 8. For he finds fault with them. Who's the them? It's the people. When he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Where is this quotation coming from? It's coming from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, one on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. In other words, once he brought them out of Egypt, that was the rescue from danger, folks. That was the ultimate picture of salvation, Old Testament-wise. And then he gives them his law, the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And we might as well finish the chapter. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The first thing you see in this text is I want you to recall the inadequacy of the old covenant. And the problem of the old covenant, again, was ultimately the problem of the heart. It's not that the covenant was bad or wrong or insufficient. It's the fact of or less than good because that covenant was right and that covenant was holy. It was a good covenant. With good laws, because they proceed from the character of our God. It was a gracious covenant that God gave to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. And after God brought them out of Egypt with His mighty hand. So the problem with the covenant was the problem of the heart. What we find in God's Word is that God must do something in us before we can properly respond to the law. Is everybody listening to that statement? God must do something internally before you can actually obey it externally. It's a necessity that God do something in our hearts. Notice what it says in Deuteronomy 29 verse 2. Y'all want to do some Bible drill today? We're in that mode for our church, aren't we? For our kids, chapter 29 verse 2. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all the servants 
and to all his land the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs that, and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. Boy, that's strong. No eyes to see, no ears to hear, and no understanding. Even in light of the fact that God had rescued them out of Egypt. So again, it was clear from the outset that God must do something in the hearts of people. And the writer is telling us the fundamental problem of the Old Covenant. God found fault. God found fault. Not with the covenant, but with the people. The idea behind the word fault is to bring an accusation against someone on the basis that the person in question is clearly to blame. To find fault in that individual. So the reason we have the second is because our God had legitimate accusations against the people. And it was beyond dispute that they had actually are in the wrong and they had fault. Jeremiah, of which you get the New Covenant uh, teaching that we just read. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. He will tell the same things to the Hebrew people over and over and over again that God has found fault with you. The entire book is actually... God explaining through the mouth of Jeremiah the fact that God's indictment from the beginning upon them was the fact that they were a hard-hearted people. Jeremiah, I've marked these, so I'm going to be faster than you are. So Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 5, just write them down and listen to me as I read. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went away after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us out of the land of Egypt, who led us to the wilderness, and a land, led us out of the, who led us in the wilderness, and a land of deserts and pits, and a land of drought and deep darkness, and a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruit and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Chapter 7, verse 23. One more before we move on. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. And went backward and not forward from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day. I have persistently sent all my servants to prophets to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear to hear, but they were stiff-necked people. They did worse than their fathers. Pretty clear where the fault lies, right? It's with the people. So God had been gracious to the people time and time and time again. There was no shortage of hearing the word. God gave it to them over and over and over again. There was no shortage of prophets and mediators. In an external sense... God had given them everything they needed to do what He had told them to do. Yet the indictment from a holy God is that you've abandoned me. The priests can't minister. You know why? God says they don't know me. The prophets are crying, peace, 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 but they don't know me. I haven't sent them. They were asked to obey over and over again, yet they would not obey. They continue to do their own thing. You know, it's a weighty thing to disregard the Word of God, isn't it? 
It's a weighty thing to do that. It's an awful thing to disregard God's kindness and His gentleness and the perpetual warnings that God gave the Israelites over and over and over again. Yet, here the Lord in Jeremiah is speaking to the people and He's saying to them, You just went on out and worshipped false gods that did not exist. And you rejected the only God that lives and the only one that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So here's what he means by saying, I'm finding fault with them. They were hard-hearted, recalcitrant, unbelieving, idolatrous Baptists. I mean, people who absolutely had no interest in the covenant that God established with them. That's the indictment from Jeremiah in light of this. And finding fault with them, like our text says. What would I have done? What would you have done with those kinds of people? Mm. Therefore, I'm done. Right? I'm done with you filthy, unclean, rebellious, idiotic, sin-ridden, leprous people. I would say, away from me, out of my sight. So the first thing I want you to do today, in light of the new covenant, is for you to understand the inadequacy of the old covenant. It wasn't the covenant. It was the heart's of the people. The covenant pronounced in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is one of the promises given to us to do just that. Take out that heart of stone where nothing can be etched and put in a pliable heart that can be written on by God. That was the goal. So it's that sense of helplessness that leaves all of us uh, to think about our own connection before the Lord. It leaves us to long for God to do something on the inside. You know, it doesn't matter if you were Moses or if you're a person living in the 21st century. We all feel the weight of God's commands as elucidated for us in the Ten Commandments and the burden of the reality that we cannot obey. You cannot obey the law as given by the Lord. We know that we can't do it. And deep down inside, if we're totally honest, we don't want to do what the law Demands. So God must do something on the inside. And so you must understand this is right and good if God is going to get all the glory in the end. Lest you think you can boast about what you've done to save yourself. God must do it in you because you cannot change your heart. So the inadequacy of the old. Here's the second thing. Recognize the grace of God at work in the new covenant. Folks, I'm not going to read it all again for the sake of time. But do you notice how many times that the singular I pronoun is used? Who's doing this covenant? Say it. Who's doing this? Just notice how many times you see the word I. Because the people could not obey. And because the people could not uh, remove their brokenness and their total depravity before God. I must act for my people. And God does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when... I will establish a new covenant. I made with their fathers. I took them out. I, I, verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my laws into their hearts and write them in minds and hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my... Y'all are getting this? Folks, anytime you see God taking the initiative, that's called grace. So thus, we recall the inadequacy of the old, but we must, we're called by God to recognize the grace of God in the new Jeremiah's quote of what God will do in the New Testament is considered the apex of Old Testament history, salvation history. That God is going to do this. And I would say, behold, the days are coming, matched perfectly with Hebrews chapter 1, 
verse 2. And God spoke, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. Right? So behold, the days are coming, or the days are here. And God now has spoken to us in these last days through His Son. So, verse 8 says, I will make. And the force of that word must, be, must not be missed. In other words, it's effectual. God is going to effect the change. Are y'all getting this? It's not something man can do. The strength of the, of the New Testament word I will make is that it is effectual. Effect is going to come out of what I'm going to do. I will bring it to completion. I will bring a covenant to full accomplishment. And at this point in redemptive history, God is going to take the initiative and the responsibility to fulfill His covenant demands. You understand, God is going to fulfill what He commands Himself to do. God is going to do this for His people. And we must see it clearly. If you're ever going to enjoy heaven and the presence of the Lord forever in heaven, then it must be on the basis of what He's done for you and not what you've done for Him. You can't enjoy heaven if, you do, if it's about what you've done for Him. Because the Bible says no man will ever boast in His presence. What do we boast in? That God said, I will make this covenant. I will affect it. I will accomplish this covenant in you. The Old Testament arrangement was, the, was not the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem was the people. If God says, I will do my part. And He says to us, you do your part. What do you know for sure is going to happen here? Our God is sovereign, and in His track record, He's never failed. So you can rest assured that God will do His part. But what do you also know? You ain't doing your part! Right? How'd you like that grammar? It's good, wasn't it? The effect was good. You, you don't have the ability in you to do your part. Apart from Jesus. We will break our part. So God says the days are coming when I will take full initiative to accomplish a new covenant. We have to love that word new. We start thinking about administration and initiative. Well, we're not talking about this in the form of a new administration or a new manner. We are talking about quality. We're talking about character. If it's new, it's going to be new in character and it's going to be new in quality. Are there levels of continuity with the old covenant? Absolutely there are. But the writer is saying that this covenant will be new in quality and character, not just in administration. Did the Israelites ever renew their covenant with God? Almost, in every, almost on every page throughout some of the prophet's writings, and even, even through Exodus and Deuteronomy, they're going to be renewing that covenant. How many times do they say, even when the golden calf incident takes place, we're not going to do this again. I mean, it's not going to happen. Oh, we will certainly obey you. They, uh, they renewed that covenant over and over and over again. They said several times, all that God has said, we will do. The last thing they needed was a renewal of the old. They had good intentions, but they had nothing on the inside for the power of lasting change. They needed circumcision of the heart, folks. They need eyes to see. They need ears to hear. Deuteronomy 29.2 is not a typo. It's not a typo to say that I did all this for them, but they don't have eyes to see, they don't have ears to hear, and they do not understand. Folks, if that's the case, that's a lost condition. 
right? They have no understanding. They have no eyes to see. They have no ears to hear. No matter how good their intentions were, the covenant was broken relatively in a short time, right? It always took place. But that's not only Israel's history. It's also your history. Now think about this for a moment. We know what it's like to make God promises. I'm going to do better. Some of you knuckleheads did this for 2019. You said, Lord, I'm going to do my best to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And I am going to do better. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to do better this year. You make vows and promises and whatever you can do. But you are by nature a covenant breaker. You are, folks. We, have a, we are to be right with God. If we are to be right with God, He has to initiate this covenant. And the Bible says in the text we've just read, not to go back and read again, who is He going to establish His covenant with? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if you track with the Old Testament, you find out that this is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which means that it's not just for a Jew. It's for everybody that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. So this is Jesus Christ to the nations. So what this means is you're not going to be saved just because you have Abraham's blood coursing through your veins. Not all of Israel is Israel. In order to become of Israel, you got to know the God of Israel and His name is Jesus Christ. You have to know Him in order. So He's going to bring this to fruition. He's going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. And the promise to Abraham was not only to his physical descendants, but all of his spiritual descendants. And if you're saved this morning, that's you. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord right now. You know, you got it, right? (laughs) Yes, there's good theology there. You are part of Abraham's seed and the fulfillment of the promise given to him. So Jeremiah is dealing with the ingathering of the nations. Isn't it awesome that way back in the Old Testament, God told you he's going to win people to himself of all people groups in the world. And he's fulfilling it. So the heirs of promise are those who are in Christ Jesus. But folks, it's all of grace. God is taking the initiative here. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. So the circumcised of heart are true Jews. Don't get wigged out by that. I want to tell you, you were saved by a full-blooded Jew. Hello? He was fully God, but he was fully Jew as well. And so in terminology of spiritual, spiritual Israel, you are that if you know Jesus. If you've been circumcised of heart. We're not talking, you know, for people who argue that there is a one-for-one equivocation with circumcision of the heart, in the, uh, circumcision, the physical circumcision of the New Te- Old Testament, and baptism in the New, you got a big problem here. Because circumcision performed physically in the Old Testament did not save you. But you're going to equivocate baptism with saving your soul? Can't happen. You're saved by Jesus and His work on Calvary, not water baptism. It can't wash away your sins. It's an antitype, 1 Peter. Jesus washes us from our sins. And baptism makes the gospel visible to the world that Jesus Christ changed us. In this present age, there's only one holy nation, and it's not the U.S. It's the church of the living God. It's those who are saved by grace through faith. With a multinational spread, 
that's going to take place to the ends of the world, and God's going to get her done. He will. He will. Finally, remember the new covenant creates an internal transformation of the person. That's what has to happen. Something has to take place on the inside. And for the sake of time, notice what he's saying clearly. Four things. There's continuity with the old covenant. What's that mean? We still have law. We still have what was written on those tablets. And that was God's law. And that doesn't go away. I want to tell you something. Before he ever wrote the, gave those ten words for the tablet, it was already in the character of God. So the law existed before it was ever given. That's God's nature. That's who he is. And so he gives us this. And, and why is there continuity? Because he's going to take that same law and he's going to put it somewhere else. He's not going to put it on tablets anymore. He's going to etch it in a heart that's pliable, that can take it. That can feel it. That can respond to it. So now at this point, the new is going to supersede the old. And yet there's still the law, folks. There's still the law. The law of God is largely moral. And is summarized where? In the Ten Commandments. Were the Ten Commandments law before Sinai? Absolutely. So as we come to the New Covenant, we must understand that there is continuity between the old and the new. The law still stands, but God's going to write it in a different place. All right, number two. The New Covenant is internal, not external. God says, I'm going to take my laws. I'm going to put it into their minds. I'm going to take my laws and I'm going to put it into their hearts. Remember that heart problem? In Ezekiel's version of the New Covenant, he says, I will put my spirit within them and I will take out a heart of stone that nothing can be etched upon and in its place I'm going to put in a heart of flesh which is pliable. This is the heart that God can write on, folks. So when Paul is discussing this in Galatians 3, he says that the old was written on tablets of stone and that it was a letter of the law that kills. Why? Because it indicts you. But it can't change you on the inside. And then he says, that's fading. But when he speaks of the new, he says, it is better because it's not the letter, but the Spirit written on our hearts. And where the law kills, the Spirit gives life. Isn't that awesome? So this is the work of grace inside of us through the Holy Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God comes to us and opens our eyes so that we can believe, He does something inside of us that is radical. It goes to the very core of our nature. And so the beauty and the power and the glory of the new covenant belongs to the master who affects the change inside of his people. Mm. So it is. The promises. Continuity with the old and new. Internal. Not external. Pharisees had all the externals. Why do you think Jesus said, unless your righteousness supersedes that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall by no means enter heaven. They looked good on the outside. They would have dressed up, smelled up, to be stuck up like most Baptists. And they would have come to church on Sunday morning. And you'd have saw that long flowing robe. And you're like, oh, they're going to heaven. But on the inside, they were whitewashed tombs. They have never been changed internally. And Jesus said to them, if you don't accept me, you don't accept my Father who sent me. Wow. The new covenant is new thinking and new feeling in our obedience, number three. The empowerment. Empowerment of the new covenant takes place where? In the mind and in the heart. It involves thinking and feeling. And we see God clearer. We, we know Him. We don't have to tell our neighbors to know Him or, or teach them to know. We know Him on the inside. I want to remind you, the greatest teacher in the world is the Holy Spirit of God. And for the life of me, I can't understand why can, how we can go spiritual AWOL from God when God lives in us. I'm going to get to that in a moment. 
When His laws are written on our minds, we also see ourselves more clearly. Not only do we see God clearly, we see ourselves clearly. We have new desires. We want to obey. We want to please God. Right? We want to please Him. For the person that enters into the new covenant relationship with God, the law is imprinted on his heart in such a way that now he says to the Lord, I don't want to live to please me. I want to live to please you. In fact, this is not, uh, is this not your greatest grief if you're saved this morning. Your greatest grief is when you want to walk with the Lord and yet you find your heart going its own way in stubborn sinfulness against God. And it grieves us, doesn't it? If it doesn't grieve you, then you're lost as a ball in high grass. You are. If it doesn't grieve you with your, when you sin, then the Holy Spirit doesn't live in you. Because the Bible expressly says that the Holy Spirit is grieved when we sin. And you will be grieved when you're tempted to go off to that far country. So here's the deal. Why does it grieve us? Because God has stamped His laws in our hearts. Folks, this is good preaching. It is. He stamped it in your heart and in your mind. You can't get away from it if you belong to Him. Right? Look, that word cuts. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And you can't, you can't seek refuge inside even. You can't. Why? Because His mind, His laws. It's written in your mind and in your heart in such a way. So... God not only changes what you think, He also changes how you feel. You want to obey. I mean, if you're saved this morning and you'll just say, I don't want to obey God, then something's wrong. Something's wrong inside of you if you don't have a desire to obey God. There ought to be this tension inside of you, this collision with the Word, with your mind and your thoughts and your heart, where it just, it makes you, oh, it puts you in a mess. And that's true of Jesus, doesn't it? He just messes everything up. And he does it in a good way. Right? He, he, that collision with the Word. So this doesn't mean that our life is going to be an un, un, uninterrupted. No matter what Osteen says. You're not going to be un, uninterrupted sailing toward heaven with no problems. But I'm telling you this. You will distinctly know that God has given you a profound difference in life. And direction in life that is radically different. Alright, four. Can you handle one more and I'm done? It's been a good thing that I don't have a watch anymore. Somebody in this, you know, the scripture says, Thou shalt not steal, and somebody stole my watch. I've looked everywhere for it, and I know what's going to happen. You're going to go buy me one, right? All right. So the new covenant, last thing, is permanent and preserving. I love this part, and it, it would literally, and I'm going to preach through Hebrews one day, but I don't have time to do this today, but just check this out. Chapter 32, about the permanent preserving nature of the new covenant versus the old. Chapter 32, verse 38. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever. For their own good, and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, that I will not turn away from them from doing good to them. Listen, folks. Listen how strong this is. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Do you notice who puts it in us for perseverance? God puts his fear inside of you so that you will, that's definitive, not turn from him. 
And don't we know this in experience in living life? Oh, if you've been given the new covenant, if you've, been, if you've had His laws written in your heart and mind, and you love Him and obey Him, you know full well that God perseveres His preserved. Right? He does. That's what God does. The old covenant was broken over and over and over again by the people's continued unfaithfulness. In the new covenant, God actually guarantees something for all of us. In the new covenant, God guarantees that He so works in the hearts that He puts His fear in our hearts so that we will not turn away from Him. That's awesome. That's permanent. That's preserving. God says the covenant stipulation this time is going to be perseverance. This is what Hebrews is all about. If you read Hebrews from 1-1 all the way through chapter 13, you'll find out there's one predominant theme. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you're going to preserve. You're going to persevere if you belong to Him. And if you don't persevere, they went out from us because they were not part of us. Had they been of us, they would have remained. If you're of us, if you're of us, you're going to remain. God is going to preserve those who He has saved. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. That's what He does. He preserves Hebrews 10.10, I think. Check me out on that. It talks about that very thing of preserving us. So, with His law stamped in our minds, with His law written in our hearts, and His fear placed in us, we will not turn away. We will not turn away. He keeps us not by coercion. He doesn't keep us by force. He keeps us because He's put His Holy Spirit inside of us. It's our nature to preserve Right? And persevere. This is why if you're a true child of God, you can't wander off into a far country and not feel something. Now, I'm not talking about doing mission work. I'm talking about wandering off and sinning against God and going off somewhere you're not supposed to be in your thinking and in your life. Why? Because there's something deep down inside of you when you're in that far country that's going to say to you, I don't belong here. You know, the Bible talks about putting on different garments. That living the Christian life is putting off the old and putting on to the new. Some of that stuff don't fit your wardrobe anymore. Right? When you put on the new, when you try to slip your foot into the old boots, right? They feel good, but that's not you. That's not you anymore. There's an old garments that are put away. New desires, new affections, new feelings for the Lord that we belong to. So Jesus, we're going to come to that point. When Jesus will say to us, you're not supposed to be here. You don't belong here. So, he will do whatever it takes to bring you back to him because of his commitment. Check this out. Why will he bring you back? Because our God is committed to that, commit, to that covenant. That's awesome. God is committed to the covenant that he made. That he enacted on better promises. For you not to arrive in heaven is for God not to be faithful to his covenant. And you're going to be there if you're saved. Because God is faithful to His covenant. Jesus said, all the Father has given me will come to me. Well, there's a tension there, isn't there? But who said that? Philip Burden or Jesus? All the ones the Father hath given me will come to me. And I will raise them all up on the last day. That's good. I'm thankful that God's going to raise up this old body. That's going to decay and fall into the ground and decimate. God, don't have, God has no problem putting bodies back together, right? And he's going to do it one day. He says, I will raise them up. The one that begins the good work in you is faithful to complete it in you. And I believe that when God's true people hear this, 
Some people could say, well, if, you, if you're saying that we're going to persevere and God won't let us turn away, then we can live any way we want to. You don't have the same spirit I've got. If you can sin and enjoy it and not turn to God, then something's wrong with you. Right? I think what you do when you hear this is to say, oh, the Father loves me in this manner through His Son. And I'm never going to turn away from Him. And I'm never going to be lost. And in the end, that doesn't make me say, yippee, I want to do whatever I want to. In the end, it says, oh, Father, what amazing grace that you've given to save broken, sinful people like we are. As the old song says, I'm prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. And we're all prone to wonder. We're, we're prone to leave the God that we love. Here's my heart, God. Take and seal it. Seal it to your courts above. And God says amen to that kind of prayer. Amen. Right? He does. Do you realize that we are celebrating the realities of the new covenant established in Hebrews chapter 8, established on the cross of Calvary in the resurrection and ascension to heaven, that we are actually taking part in these realities every Sunday morning when we come together as a church. Oh, that's why when we start singing those songs and the first words come out of Brother David's mouth, we ought to be singing those new covenant realities. That God, you would save a sinner like us and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Every baptism is a celebration of new and everlasting of a new and everlasting covenant. Every time you partake of the Lord's Supper, we're directly celebrating the fulfillment of the new covenant just like Jesus instructed us to do. As you do this, as often as you do this, you're doing it in remembrance of me. And when he held that cup, this is the covenant in my blood. Folks, that what, that's what he was saying. I'm about to enact a new covenant with better promises than the first. A mediator of a greater covenant established by Jesus. Thanks be to God for a covenant that is something not out there, but something that is in here. Amen? Thank the Lord for a covenant that was established on the inside and not on the outside. Thank God for the message of grace that transforms the heart and mind and desires and keeps us all the way to the end. Without such a covenant, none of us would have hope. And all God's people said, Amen. next week we're going to look at that quintessential promise of the covenant. You see it in verse 12? I will be merciful to them. The word is propitious. That sound familiar? That's the Greek word. God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be merciful toward them, and I will forgive their sins and remember them. Whew, remember them no more. That's good news. Great God, we thank you for loving us. Father, thank you for the power of the word. I know I haven't done justice to these verses. There's no way in this amount of time what we really see in the fulfillment of the new covenant. But God, help us know that without Jesus, we have no hope. And even the Old Testament saints were not saved by the law. They were saved looking toward the King, Jesus. According to Hebrews chapter 9, there was a will in fact. Oh Lord, this is awesome. And that will was established before the foundation of the world. And because of that will being enacted, the Old Testament saints could be saved. God, thank you for that. They were saved the same way we are. Through the precious blood of Jesus. Given to us in completion of the great redemptive plan that started way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We praise you for salvation. Now, Lord, it's highly possible that there's someone in this building, maybe they've got some of the externals looking good, but they know on the inside there's no desire to obey you. There's been no transformation of their life. But, Lord Jesus, you can change that today.
Your word says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, your word reminds us that you are a willing Savior. That you can save anybody, anywhere, anytime that will believe in Jesus. Repent of their sin and turn and trust you. Move from a place of unbelief to a place of belief in the perfect new covenant work of Jesus Christ. God, help them be saved today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.